If you will turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, this morning we will be looking at verses 37 through 42. The sermon is entitled, You Be the Judge. Our key words for our worshipers in training are judge, forgive, and log. Now perhaps you have noticed this, but it doesn't take very long in any kind of public discourse with Christians or non-Christians alike. When any issue of moral contention arises, you will, without fail, hear the words, Judge not, lest ye be judged. Now, while I'm not sure why the king's English seems most appropriate in those moments, it certainly has to be one of the most abused and misused texts in all the scriptures. So misused, in fact, that the late hip-hop artist Tupac popularized the phrase, only God can judge me. In a profanity-laced song with that title, lines like, That which does not kill me can only make me stronger. And I don't see why everybody feel as though that they got to tell me how to live my life. Let me live, baby. Let me live. Only God can judge me now. Perhaps you know that song. <laughs> and while I've not done any kind of in-depth study on the theological nuances of Tupac... I have a hunch that he may have not considered the famous statement of Jesus in its proper biblical context. Interestingly, most often when telling someone that you like their clothing, that you appreciate their personality, or you think that they do excellent work, their response is not generally, why are you judging me? What's with the judgment? Judge not, lest you be judged. Get a grip. Worry about yourself. But on the other hand, if you dare mention to someone like Tupac that a lifestyle of gang violence and drug abuse and womanizing is more than slightly immoral, then the biblical scholar inside of them rises up to remind us that we shouldn't actually care about what anyone else does. And even if God cares, we're not supposed to point that out. In other words, we are told we aren't supposed to make moral judgments. But doesn't that sound a lot like a moral judgment about my moral judgments? You see, it's an endless loop that cannot be avoided. Not surprisingly, the statement of Jesus, which is also recorded in Matthew chapter 7, receives its own chapter in a new book, a very excellent book entitled The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. The author writes, Those who mishandle this verse often use it as a shield for sin, a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing them to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. Their objections are like this. Aren't we all sinners? What gives us the right to make moral judgments about someone else? Isn't that God's job? And so I'll, I'll give a little. 
Yes, in the end, ultimate judgment is God's job. And he will judge every man, every woman, and every child according to their deeds. But that's just the problem that those who make such claims are really hoping to avoid in the end, isn't it? Yes, Mr. Tupac, in the end, God's judgment is the only one that matters. But I'm afraid he's not going to look as favorably upon you as your adoring fans. So what does Jesus mean then when he does exhort his disciples with regard to judging others? Is he really calling us to a life void of judgment calls or moral exhortations? Or is it something else altogether? Let's read chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 37. Remember, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Plain. And he said, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, we have to admit that every one of us makes judgments every single day. Some are very positive. I like your hair. You've done a good job. You're very kind. Others may be negative. He's not a very nice person. She's very bossy. You only do what serves yourself. Some judgments are right. Others are dead wrong. But given the amount of instances when Jesus calls his disciples to actually make specific judgments about themselves and others, many of which we're going to look at over the next several chapters, we have to conclude that when Jesus is talking about judgment, he's doing so in a very specific manner. In other words, there's a specific kind of judging that we are called away from as Jesus' disciples. You see, his intent was not to give a reason for anyone to justify unrestrained moral freedom and independence. His agenda was not some kind of hands-off approach to moral accountability, refusing to allow anyone to make moral judgments in any sense whatsoever. Instead, Jesus is dealing with the tendency of our hearts to take up judgmental, condemning dispositions toward others. It is judging for the pleasure of judging and making ourselves to feel superior and self-righteous. 
Specifically, Jesus is dealing with the hypocritical position that his disciples saw in the Pharisees who were very quick to see and to point out and to condemn the sins of others while being completely blind and unwilling to hold themselves accountable to the very same standard that they were applying to everybody else. And therein lies the pharisaical tendency within each and every one of us, rushing to condemn our own sins in other people. It's really a revelation of one's own soul. Perhaps the greatest biblical example of this is in the life of King David. Remember, he committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. And then he sought to cover it up. So he had her husband, Uriah, brought back from battle in an attempt to stage as though Bathsheba's pregnancy was as a result of her laying with her own husband. But Uriah, being a man of honor, refused while the soldiers were at battle in the field. And so David sent Uriah back to the battle, to the front lines to ensure that he would be killed, to cover up his sin. Now, if you recall, Nathan the prophet visited David and told the unsuspecting king, the tale of a rich man who took a poor man's beloved pet sheep and slaughtered it to feed his guests. Horrified, David responded in 2 Samuel 12, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan looked at David and said, You are that man. You see, David, though guilty of a far greater sin, was blind to his own condition, even while he was enraged over the sins of another. And so it goes in our own hearts, doesn't it? The greedy delight to condemn greed in others. The ambitious who charges others with self-ambition. Liars who love to catch other liars in their lies. Somehow, when we get judgmental, our tendency is to imagine our guilt will be lessened by judging our sins in other people. So you see, making a judgment call is not Jesus' issue. Or much of what he says elsewhere in the scriptures would be a complete contradiction. In fact, one of the most common statements of Jesus to those he encountered was go and sin no more. What a judgment. Consider, for example, the Samaritan woman who is at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus identifies her sin. And she is a promiscuous woman who does not have one but has had five husbands. And the current man she's living with is not her husband at all. Instantly. She knows her sin. Instantly, she recognizes Jesus' reasoning. What he's pointing out to her. But notice, too, how Jesus deals with it. He calls it out. He sees she's aware of it. 
And then he offers her living water. Jesus' approach to the Samaritan woman at the well was not a condemning or judgmental spirit. But it was with a seriousness about sin and an offer of the gospel. In fact, everyone else around her looked at her with contempt and disgust, with judgmental, condemning hearts. It's the very reason she was at the well in the middle of the day by herself, because none of the other women would be dead, would be caught dead around her. She was dirty. She was unclean. She was a sinner. But Jesus approached her. He called her to repentance and he offered her the gospel. Living water, true joy, lasting joy, eternal life. Was there a moral judgment? Yes, absolutely. Was Jesus judgmental? Not in the least bit. Likewise, and another passage that is so often abused, Jesus approaches an angry mob of scribes and Pharisees who caught a woman in the act of adultery and they're ready to stone her to death. And so they ask Jesus to try and catch him. What shall we do with her? The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus, seeing their condemning, judgmental spirit, says to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they drop their stones and they walk away. But does Jesus look at her and say, Woman, go on and do what you'd like. I forgive you. No. He calls her to repentance and he offers reconciliation. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, again, Jesus did not ignore her sin. He didn't say her sin didn't matter. In fact, he made a moral judgment and called her to a higher standard of living, but he did it without being judgmental, without condemning. His desire was to see her walk in purity and holiness, not condemnation and sin. So once again, we see highlighted by Luke the primary concern of Jesus. It's the heart of a person. A person who is always looking and waiting or even perhaps unwittingly wanting others to sin that they can pounce. Judgmentalism is detestable because it's merciless. It's assuming a person's motives based upon their actions. It's seeing others in the worst possible light, regardless of our very own tendencies to sin in the very same ways. Perhaps the sins of others are so easy to see because we're so very familiar with them. Judgmentalism is, at best, a sign of spiritual cancer. At worst, it's a sign of spiritual death. 
if you were to compare the heart of a judgmentalism to the attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13, you would see absolute opposition that arises between the two. Assuming the worst and being judgmental is in direct opposition to the love that we are called to as God's people. This is why Jesus tells us that judgmental people will be judged and condemning people will be condemned. And maybe if you're judgmental, you're judging Jesus for judging those who are judgmental by saying in the end that they will be judged, aren't you? Are you judgmental and condemning? Is everyone guilty in your eyes until proven innocent? And even then, you're a little bit suspect that maybe they're covering something up. Do you feel justified in your own sins when you point out the sins of others that are identical to yours? Do you have a feeling of excitement and a rush of joy when you catch and make known the sins of others? Do you have a good laugh in your heart and say, I knew it was coming? If so, it surely is time for you to be the judge, but not of others, rather yourself. We must be diligent to check our own hearts, as we will see later in this passage, unless we accuse others of our very own sins without a twinge of guilt, without a twinge of repentance on our part. And I think I have enough experience within God's church to say that most problems of disunity among the people of God, most problems of division and quarreling within God's church are a result of condemning judgmental hearts that refuse mercy and love and instead cling to that which is intrinsically self-righteous and displays a complex of superiority. True mercy that is expressed in the heart of a Christian is a mercy that refuses to hold others down in condemnation. In large part, we have to consider Jesus' exhortation in light of the previous passage concerning our love for our enemies. A judgmental heart holds enemies in contempt with no desire to encourage them toward God. The heart of a disciple, on the other hand, is slow to condemn, quick to offer forgiveness. Forgetting how far God condescended in Christ to pull us from the grave, our pit of despair, the tendency when living upon our own righteousness and self-worth is to assume that others are beyond the reach of God. But Jesus points out, let the habitual self-righteous fault finder beware you can expect to be adversely criticized and condemned. And this is not only by men, but also and especially by God. So Jesus demands, do not judge, do not condemn. 
But what is the opposite of condemnation? How might we rightly honor God and love our neighbor? Jesus tells us forgiveness. Forgive, he says, and you will be forgiven. The great Puritan Thomas Watson observed, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. True Christians do and can forgive. Those who are resting upon the righteousness of Christ and have a new transformed heart from God will offer forgiveness to those who have sinned against them. This is not to say that we will not struggle with forgiving or that we are free from battles with bitterness or hatred or that we are never so hurt and in such emotional shock that we will find it very difficult to respond with forgiveness. But it is to say that we will work at forgiving. We will offer forgiveness. And ultimately, we don't condemn. We do forgive. Forgiveness is making a willful decision to not permanently hold an offense against another person. You see, it really has nothing to do with our emotions at all. It's a decision of the will. Feelings will eventually follow, but we must lead our emotions. We must forgive others in spite of our current feelings. But at heart, all of Jesus' disciples, if we are children of God, we have forgiving dispositions. Now notice, he's not saying, if you are my disciple, you will have a heart of forgiveness, which is the grounds for your forgiveness. He's saying, you will have a heart of forgiveness, which indicates that you are forgiven. Very important distinction. But have you ever said, I will never forgive whoever? I hope not. An attitude of I will never forgive is revealing of an unforgiven heart. An unwillingness to forgive points to a person who is not forgiven themselves. You see, when we've experienced the forgiveness of God in our lives, true disciples of Christ cannot help but forgive others because we know from how great a depth we've been rescued from in our own sinfulness. Now, if we don't see that great divide between who we were as pitiable, wretched sinners and the holiness of God, then we are self-righteous. We are filled with pride we find ourselves to be deserving of what God has done. That's a dangerous ground to be on. But when we know how God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus, a willingness to forgive is a natural outflow from our hearts. But Jesus doesn't stop with his command to withhold judgment and condemnation while offering forgiveness. He goes further 
Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Now, this isn't a verse we take out of context and talk about tithing. (laughs) Jesus' disciples have forgiving and giving hearts. In other words, a generosity of heart toward others. In our vernacular, we cut people some slack. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Recognize they will sin. Point it out to them. Hold them accountable by all means, but offer them forgiveness. Reconcile when they repent and move on. Don't hold it over them. Don't make them endure the consequences beyond what is absolutely necessary. God's people have generous attitudes toward those we naturally want to condemn without grace. Jesus showed this generosity of spirit to so many people who were caught right in the midst of their sin. Consider our previous example of the two women, the Samaritan and the adulterous woman. Even more telling, if you're a Christian, consider yourself. How much has God given to you in generosity of heart? He looked at your sin, and rather than hammer away at your sinfulness, He gave you Christ, that you might be alive together with Him. You see, Jesus highlights the reality that a selfish-hearted person will rob himself of blessing. Give, and it will be given to you. So too, the opposite is also true. Do not give, and it will not be given to you. Now, he's not speaking here of mere human relations. He's speaking of a final reckoning with God. That is the context of judgment and condemnation and forgiveness. It's also implied in the gracious promise that our reward will be pressed down and shaken together and running over. And he's speaking here of a a process that was used in giving grain at the market. They would scoop up grain and they would press it down and they would shake it to let it fall down and then they would put a hole in the middle and fill it some more and make sure that it was packed in there as tight as possible. They got as much as was possible, even to where it was overflowing. This is how God gives to us, isn't it? This is a picture of God's overflowing grace. If we give, God will reward in the fullest possible measure. It will be packed in as tightly as possible. It will even be uh, filled to overflowing But if we're not givers, if our hearts are guarded, if our hearts are condemning and judgmental, we will be condemned for our selfish, unbroken, unredeemed hearts. But by our giving, we build the measure that will be used for giving back to us. Jesus says that our own measure is used to measure against us. By using it ourselves, we declare that we want God to use it for us in the end. 
So consider, is the way you look at others and make judgments about them the way that you want God to look at you and make judgments about you? That's what happens. It is the measure we bring to God, and He fills it. And fill it to overflowing, He will. But if you give nothing, you will receive even less. And if you give much, you will receive vastly more. But again, this isn't talking mainly about material giving, of blessings of wealth, but rather grace, forgiveness, mercy. And the reward in turn is more grace upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. This is the amazing grace of God. The way of the kingdom of God is that a person is transformed from within, forsaking the ways of the teachers of the law. Those who are judgmental and condemning. Those who do not forgive. Those who do not give. Jesus calls them blind. And if they are your teachers, you too are blind and you are being led by the blind. And if you continue to walk in the way of these teachers, you will become just like them. Look again, verses 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The teacher-pupil relationship in the ancient world was very intimate. It was very unlike most relationships that we see today. A disciple learned oral instruction, and they witnessed and were called to emulate the attitudes displayed in their teacher's life. It wasn't merely receiving information from an expert, but actually becoming like the teacher himself, thinking the way he thinks, reasoning the way he reasons, Speaking the way he speaks. In Jesus' time, one's teacher was everything because they couldn't just go to the local library or spend some time doing research on the internet. So Jesus points out, for one to claim to be above his teacher would have been the height of arrogance. Nobody does that. It goes the other way around. A disciple will become like the one they are being discipled by. To say a disciple is like his teacher was Jesus' way of saying that the lives of his disciples had to model spiritually. What we are in our lives, our disciples will become. There are few things more important for the one who is discipling than the authenticity of his life. His subtle faults often become great faults in his disciples. But it's also true that his virtues will sometime blossom in his followers beyond their grandest dreams. Next to the word of God, few things influence others more than the authenticity of someone else's life. Parents, this is a huge responsibility for us. Most importantly, if we want to become like Jesus Christ, we must know the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, thinking, acting, living as he lived. 
The only way we become what he calls us to be is to take him as our teacher, become his disciples, study as his students, and walk in his ways. For some of us, our blind teachers aren't necessarily individuals. Maybe so. Maybe someone you look up to for whatever reason isn't even a Christian at all, and you get your cues from them because you respect them. And sometimes in doing so, you dishonor God and walk in a way contrary to the word. For others, blind teachers might be the things that we so engage ourselves in that we are consumed and deeply affected by that might not even be of godly interest whatsoever. We live in a culture filled with blind guides giving all sorts of nonsensical advice that Christians would do well to stay far away from. Follow your heart. You mean the heart that the Bible says is deceitful and wicked above all things? Live for yourself. You mean as opposed to laying down my life And considering others far greater than myself. Do what feels right. You mean without considering whether or not God's moral law has anything to say about my actions? Do we really think it wise to follow blind teachers who tell us to follow our hearts and to live for ourselves and to always do what feels right as long as we're happy? we will surely fall into the pit with them. So what's the point? Why is this short parable in the midst of Jesus' exhortation about judgment and forgiveness and giving? He's telling his disciples, those men are, who are supposed to be the highly esteemed teachers of the law, they are judgmental, they are merciless, They are unforgiving. They are full of condemnation and hatred. If they are your teachers, if you walk in their path and do as they do, you too will be judgmental and merciless and unforgiving. They are blind leaders. Do you want to walk in blindness? More specifically, we can ask, what is the remedy for blindness in this area of judgmentalism and condemnation? Avoid false teachers, yes, but how is it that we are able to walk in the humility of forgiveness and generosity that Jesus calls us to? Look at verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye? When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, next time we look at Luke, we will see in the very next verses, 43 through 45, that we must make moral judgments, as I pointed out already. But how do we make moral judgments without being judgmental or overly critical and condemning of others? The answer is right here in these two verses. You see, it begins with us judging our own hearts. It begins in self-examination. 
The problem, as Jesus presents it, is that we often see others in sin and we are absolutely called to deal with that sin and to confront and help correct that sin. But first, we have to deal with our very own sin. It is always a lot easier to see other people's sins far greater than our own, isn't it? If you've ever talked to a married couple at odds with each other, they're very good about telling you about the other person's sins. They're great historians. They record them all and they will lay them out for you one after the other, after the other, after the other. And once one is done, the other will do the same. And you just sit back and ask, well, why are you even here? You both seem to know what the problem is. The other person. And yet Jesus calls us to something far more important than identifying the sins of others. You see, our desire is that we want to call out, Hey, law guy! You might want to do something about that. Man, what is that in your eye? What, what's that? Oh, that's a little piece of sawdust in my eye. It came off that huge log sticking out of your eye. It happens, doesn't it? But you see, the problem is that we haven't dealt with the real log in the situation. Namely, the one that is in our own eye. And so we're only left with one eye to discern the tiny speck in our brothers. Those who are most gracious, those who understand what it is to offer forgiveness and to give freely, are those who understand their own sinfulness the most. It's those who see sin in someone else's life, but before dealing with them, they get on their face before God. And as they pray... They hear the sound of the horn blowing and they say log truck coming through. You see, when we understand our forgiveness in Christ, we will be forgiving also. Paul writes in Colossians 3, calling Christians to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It goes back to what we looked at last week in verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We give what has been given to us. You know, this having hearts and quickly offering forgiveness that are lavishly generous to others, this is really focused and applied within the church. If it was, this alone would make us as a people right here, a people who could rightly, gently, lovingly, and effectively deal with the sins of one another without being judgmental and condemning. And I really want to be praying, and I hope you'll join me, that we can be a place, we can be a people that is really safe to deal with our sins with each other, where it's really safe to share with others openly, hey, listen, I am struggling with something right now and I really need your help. 
Consider that. Are we safe for each other? Let me give you an example. How would you as an individual, and consider maybe how would we as a body of believers respond? If someone we love, we've cared for, we've seen actively involved in this church for years and years and years, come to some of us and say, hey, listen, I am really struggling right now. I have same-sex attraction. I've never acted on it. I don't want it. I pray that God would take it from me, but I'm really struggling with it and I want help. Look, I, I know that's a big, big political issue for all sorts of reasons. I know we're bombarded with this issue on a daily basis. Our position as Christians is considered to be the most hateful, horrendous position of any issue in the world. I realize we're probably taking a risk by even bringing it up this morning. But here's the deal. If all that Jesus is calling us to is going to be real in our midst, if we're really going to walk in faithfulness to what Jesus is saying, we don't get to decide what is and what isn't confessed and whether or not we will be judgmental and condemning toward some and not others. We have to be a place. We have to be a people who are safe so that someone who is struggling in this way, in any way, instead of following their sins and falling into a perpetual pattern of sin, can instead get help and say, I need help. I want prayer. I want accountability. I want counsel. I don't want to go in this way. Now, don't walk out of here and think I said homosexual acts aren't sinful or that I'm soft on sexual morality or anything like that. I didn't say that, and I don't think that. But there's a large gap between homosexual acts and a man or a woman who struggles with the temptation of same-sex attraction, who needs and wants help. And we can say that about any particular area of sin. There's a wide gap between drunkenness and the temptation to drink to excess. There's a wide gap between adultery and the temptation to look at someone with lust. Look, I'm not even talking about doing. I'm talking about the temptation, which in and of itself is an opportunity to obey God. So are there sins that people are tempted to that if they were admitted to us, if someone walked up here at the end of our worship service and say, I am struggling, are there certain sins that we would know how to handle? We would look at them differently. We'd be uncomfortable around them and maybe cast them aside. Would we be judgmental and condemning? Or would we be quick to recognize that their temptation to sin is a real struggle that needs real compassion and needs the real community of faith to come alongside them and to help them walk faithfully with the Lord? If you and I as Christians are not before the Lord praying, seeking, and pleading with God, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. 
If we're not praying that psalm, we will never discover the depths of our own sins. We will live upon ourselves instead of upon God. And we will walk in the way of the blind teachers. We will deal with others in the hypocrisy that Jesus condemns in the Jewish leaders. But when we are living to remove the many logs that are in our own eyes, we will see the sin of others as they really are. Probably just specks. So then we can hear someone confess sin and temptation. We can have someone come to us and say, listen, I need help. And we can respond, I had to remove a really large piece of lumber from my own eye. I wasn't seeing clearly, but by God's grace, I can see now. Might I share with you the grace that I have found in Jesus Christ? It's then that we become helpful. That it's then that we become loving and gracious and forgiving. We become generous disciples with spiritual vision that's not clouded with our own sins. Submitting our lives to the searchlight of God's word, confessing our own sins, removing the logs that might have the ability to keep us from seeing our brother's need more clearly, to see our sister's needs more clearly. So here's the deal. I want to be a safe person. And I hope that we are and can be a safe church for people to admit what we already know about each other. We're sinful. We're broken. We're just really messed up. That's why we're here. We need Jesus and we need one another. And as we apply God's law to our lives and seek to walk in the grace and righteousness provided by Christ for our sanctification, we realize more and more just how needy we are and just how much he provides. And I pray that it moves us to be more and more like Jesus, rightly handling the sins of others and rightly viewing others, not with judgmental and condemning hearts, but with compassion and grace. Let's be people who more and more are pointing others to the cross. Now you personally may very well be struggling with some specific sin that you're too embarrassed to confess to someone else. So you're sitting on it. You're trying to conquer it in your own strength. I assure you it's not going to work. You may be looking at pornography You may be stealing money from your work. You may be going home every night and getting drunk. You may be fornicating or even struggling with same-sex attraction. Whatever it is, there's hope. There's help. There's real, true freedom in Jesus. And my prayer is that we collectively can be a people who lovingly and graciously recognize our own logs in our own eyes remove them, and help you along in the journey. It's long, it's dirty, it's difficult, and it's always in the same direction toward our great heavenly reward. And so I'm pleading with you to not give up the struggle. Get help in the struggle. Brothers and sisters, when others come to us and admit their sins and ask for help, 
We need to instantly check our own hearts and our dispositions toward them. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful so that you will be a help in getting the speck out of your brother's eye. There are some here today who think they're too dirty and too sinful and too weak altogether to come to Jesus. You think you need to clean yourself up, make things right, and then Jesus might accept you. But here's the problem. You cannot make yourself right before God. He has given his law. He has commanded all men everywhere to uphold it perfectly. But from the very beginning, we have failed. Since the garden, when our first parents ate the forbidden fruit, we have failed. And there is no cleaning ourselves up. We all stand guilty. We all stand condemned already between, before a holy, righteous, and perfect God. But in his great love and mercy, God has made a way in Jesus Christ. He made him sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the call is to repent of our sins, to confess our sins, to run to Jesus, and to trust in him as our great treasure to trust in him as our sole source of life and to go and sin no more. Jesus has taken upon himself the wrath of God that was reserved for his people. And in exchange, his people have been credited with his righteousness. His right standing has become ours. We didn't deserve it. And before God called us onto himself, we didn't want it. But praise be to God that he did it. And may it be that with humility and grace we remember, oh, how great a sinner I have been. Oh, how great the mercy of God. Oh, how much mercy I must show others. Help me, oh God, to love as you have loved, to forgive as you have forgiven, and to give of myself in the way that you've given yourself for me. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are a people who are broken, who are needy, and who sometimes find ourselves in the most shameful of ways. Seeing our sins in the lives of others, and instead of addressing our own sins in our own hearts because they've been made all the more clear, we judge and condemn them. And we feel relieved. That maybe, just maybe, you are now looking on them instead of us because we, in our own self-righteousness, have been able to point out their failings. But Lord, I pray that you help us to be a people who recognizes our own sins, confesses 
repents of our own sins, that we might be useful to one another. And in doing so, that we could be made a people of great love and compassion and mercy, that we can show mercy because we've been shown great mercy, that we would be merciful because our Father is merciful. God, make us a people, make us a church that's safe, safe to confess sin, safe to confess temptation, safe to get help, to admit our failure, our shame, our loss. And in all of this, Lord, that all of us would stand ready not to condemn, but to help, to counsel, to pray for, to encourage one another. Well, that's true biblical love for one another. And if we can't do that, if we don't have that, I don't know why we're here. And I pray, God, that you make us those people because we can't. And we don't desire to do that on our own. It must be a work of your divine, sovereign grace to transform our hearts more and more that we can be the people that you're calling us in your word to be. So help us, God. I pray that for your glory, by your grace and your mercy, that you would make us those kinds of people. And for anyone who is here today, Lord, that is struggling with temptation and sin, that you would move in their heart, that they would have a desire this morning to grab someone and to tell them to get help. And that we would receive that and love them well. For anyone here this morning, Lord, who's not a Christian, I pray that you're moving in their heart. That you're calling to mind in their own lives how they have broken your holy law. And that they would see the own weight of their sin upon their shoulders and their need for relief that is only found in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Convict of sin, O God, and bring about repentance that we might walk in the wholeness and joy of life everlasting in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you. And ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.